Voices are exotic Dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices In ear seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode, we're going to explore the evidence that demonstrates that we have human rights. In the last episode, we ended with an evaluation of a subjective human data set compiled from inmates living on death row. This data set, along with the objective human data sets we've compiled that demonstrate that human beings suffer when they are murdered, helped us to come to the moral conclusion that murdering people that murder other people is immoral. By utilizing this data, that is the scientific evidence that we've collected relating to murder, we were able to navigate the moral quandary encapsulated in the question, quote, should we put murderers to death, unquote. By using the same technique, we are now going to demonstrate that homo sapiens have human rights, specifically the right to bodily autonomy. Before we demonstrate that we have a right to bodily autonomy, let's first establish a definition for bodily autonomy. Let's start with the word autonomy. Autonomy is defined as self-governance, or freedom from external control or influence. If we marry the two terms, then we have freedom to self-govern one's body irrespective of any external control or influence. This is a pretty good starting point for our definition, but before we move on, I want to state clearly, here and now, that this definition might benefit from revision. Specifically, as we collect more data from humanity regarding exactly what manner of control or influence one might accept or reject. I'll elaborate on this further in future episodes. Just understand now that I'm not convinced that we have enough subjective moral data to fully understand the concepts of control and influence. However, I am convinced that the objective moral data is robust and conclusive. Thus, the objective facts should motivate us to collect and compile more subjective human data sets in order to attain the best understanding of what it means to control and influence humanity. So. Let's start with the subjective human data sets that we do have regarding people's thoughts and feelings about their right to bodily autonomy. While the data that we currently have is admittedly poor, at least by the Schilling standard, it is still very clear that humans report flourishing when they have control over their bodies, and suffering when that control is taken from them, especially when the taking of that control is by other human beings. One such data set that helps to illustrate this was published by the OECD, that is, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In a study conducted in 2019, the OECD found the following data. This table is entitled, Percentage of Women Aged 15 to 49 Who Consider a Husband to be Justified in Hitting or Beating His Wife. There are a few things to notice about these data. The first is the nature of the question. This is a very odd question to ask. 
But interestingly, it was one of the only studies that I could find that seemed to utilize, at least partially, this the Schilling standard. The next thing to notice is that there was not a follow-up question of, quote, why did these women feel that this behavior was justified, unquote. Perhaps, most importantly, these women were never asked if being beaten, justified or not, caused them to suffer. It's data like this that prompted me to notify you earlier that I'm not convinced that we've collected enough subjective human data sets to clearly define the words control or influence from our definition of bodily autonomy stated earlier. Thus, I suspect that we can improve on our definition of bodily autonomy by answering the additional questions I've posed, and many more. Anyway, the data clearly shows that in all cases except for South Africa, the vast majority of women do not believe that they should be hit or beaten by their husbands. These data provide us with a subjective data set to reference. These data also provide us with clear moral direction so that we conclude that the answer to the question, should men hit or beat their wives, is a resounding no. So now let's consider the objective data that we've collected. The objective human data sets that we've collected from the sciences are unanimous in their findings. On all accounts, humanity suffers when it loses control of their bodies. That includes the non-human invaders, like cancer, other diseases, and other losses, including the accidental loss of limbs and those that either do not have or have lost the senses of sight, hearing, and speech. This suffering is even further extended to those that lose control of basic bodily functions due to aging. In fact, the very process of aging, which is often considered a loss of bodily control, causes widespread suffering among all humans. These are objective facts. However, the opposite is also true. That is, that all the objective data that we have reports that humanity flourishes by every objective metric when we have control over our bodies and the ability to exercise that control to seek out that which we need, want, and desire. This brings us to the foundational evidence that demonstrates humanity's right to bodily autonomy, the science of biology. So now we've established a subjective human data set and objective human data sets demonstrating how Homo sapiens either suffer or flourish in relation to their rights to bodily autonomy. Now let's go one step further. How do we know that we have this right? What is the most foundational evidence? Up until now, we can show how humans suffer and flourish and how that suffering and flourishing relates to bodily autonomy. This is a demonstration that having the right to bodily autonomy is in direct relation to morality and therefore should be included in a sound moral system. But do we have evidence to demonstrate even further why we have this right? Do we need such evidence to include this right in our science of morality? The truth of the matter is that we may not need further evidence. What I've already provided is sufficient, but we have more foundational evidence, so I'm going to go over it now. As this evidence relates to human rights, I'd classify it as the most basal evidence we have to demonstrate human rights. So let's get into it. The science of biology defines life as having basic properties. 
While they differ between the different subfields of biology, they are generally agreed upon as having the capacity for growth, reaction to stimuli, metabolism, energy transformation, and reproduction. These traits can be further expanded upon to include maintaining homeostasis, being composed of cells, having a life cycle, the ability to adapt to changes in environment, and evolving over multiple generations. If you look closely, you can see humanity's right to bodily autonomy within this definition. To further highlight it, let's now take a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This hierarchy was established in the field of psychology and helps to clarify how the basic traits of life, detailed above, translates to humanity. In the hierarchy, Maslow puts at the base what he calls physiological needs. They are air, food, drink, shelter, clothing, warmth, sex, and sleep. Let's now consolidate this list to its bare essentials. Let's get rid of clothing and warmth because they are just derivatives of shelter. Let's also change drink to water, just to be more clear and specific. And finally, let's remove sex. Now hold on, before I lose all of you, I'm going to add it back in later. This is because it involves another human being and thus requires more complexity, specifically consent. But returning to our list, let's now add one that was missed, homeostasis. Homeostasis refers to our necessity to regulate an equilibrium within our bodies. Basically, we need to shit. And as a well-regulated homeostasis, our right to shit shall not be infringed. One thing to notice about all these biological facts is that they are a foundation to any other activity we might engage in. Thus, to hinder any of these activities is equivalent to causing suffering. So when humanity is free to pursue these needs, they are said to flourish. Again, that list of biological needs is air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and homeostasis. This list of biological facts are the moral bedrock for humanity's right to bodily autonomy. The fact that we must do these things and cannot escape these pursuits demonstrates this right. As an exercise to further clarify why the physiological and biological facts I've just listed are the foundation to our human rights, let's compare them to the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The first thing to notice about the UN's declaration is that none of the evidence for human rights is included in there. Not humanity's need for air, water, or shelter, and there is no mention of humanity's right to bodily autonomy, at least not directly. Those words, bodily autonomy, are not present in the declaration. In fact, there are no facts of biology or human physiology detailed out in this document at all. An interesting and troubling exclusion, as we are definitely biological creatures whose rights stem from the facts of our biology, as we have just demonstrated. Anyway, skipping the first two articles down to the third, we get our first indication of an evidence-based foundation for the list of declarations. Article 3 states, quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. 
The first right, life, we've defined above, which is foundational to our claim to having human rights. Because what is a right to life if it is not the right to engage with our surroundings as living creatures? What else could we be expected to do? This is just a biological fact of our evolutionary path through the eons. I would argue that instead of using the shorthand life, we ought to include the more descriptive biological definition of life I referenced earlier. We have the science. Why not codify it into our universal documents? Moving on to the next right, liberty. What is liberty if it is not just the freedom to move about as we see fit to gain access to air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and to maintain homeostasis? Hopefully you see where this is going. The rights that the UN has identified are just reiterations of our most basic human right, bodily autonomy. The last right declared is security of person. This is another way of saying bodily autonomy and clearly an odd wording choice. Why not just say that human beings, in recognition of their biology and physiology, must have governance over what happens to their own bodies? While I agree with what the UN's Declaration of Human Rights attempts to accomplish, their language fails to include clear and distinct definitions for the words that they use and is therefore subject to interpretation. Also, they fail to clearly identify the evidence that demonstrates that these rights are sound. Again, we have the science. Why not include it in this document? I would summarize my position like this. If there is any right that we have, it is the right to do that which we must. We have no choice in our biology, nor do we have a choice in our physiology. Thus, our right to bodily autonomy follows from the inescapable facts of our evolution. We must breathe, drink, eat, sleep, shit, and seek shelter. We have no other choice. Furthermore, any attempt to hinder our bodily autonomy in an effort to stop us from conducting ourselves in these ways is futile and instantly leads to suffering. All the evidence, whether objective or subjective, demonstrates this fact. So it can be said that we have a right to bodily autonomy. We have no other choice. The only choice we do have is whether or not we claim that right. Because if there is one thing that the evidence makes clear, it is that humanity will deny itself and others this inescapable right if given the opportunity. Therefore, we ought to encode our right to bodily autonomy, including all the evidence and definitions we've discovered in the fields of science, into our moral declarations, constitutions, and governmental documents. That way, there is no room for interpretation, and as a result, we minimize our chance of causing human suffering. Yet again, we have the science. Why not include it? So let's conclude this with some final thoughts. It should be clear to you now that we have a right to bodily autonomy. Our biology and physiology gives us no other choice. The evidence is conclusive. It should also be clear that we need to get to work and collect more human data sets 
to help us understand exactly under what conditions humanity freely gives up its right to bodily autonomy. The evidence we do have shows us two irrefutable facts. One, that human beings seem to be prone to denying the rights of others. Two, that human beings often fail to claim their right to bodily autonomy, even going so far as to believe that they don't have this right. This data is confusing, and the reason I hedged earlier and clearly proclaimed that I'm not convinced that our definition of bodily autonomy is fully accurate. Specifically, that we need to conduct more research into understanding and determining the true nature of the words control and influence. Also, that our right to bodily autonomy is very clearly evidenced with the hard sciences and supported by a very large majority of humanity, as is demonstrated in our subjective human data sets. So, not only do we have a right to bodily autonomy, as evidenced by the hard sciences, but bodily autonomy is required to be included in a sound science of morality. This fact is as inescapable as our need to breathe. That's all for this episode. Wait, you forgot about sex. I know, keep your shirt on. Or take it off, it's, it's your body. Due to the fact that sex is a necessary human need and that it involves the consent of another homo sapiens, we're going to deal with it independently in the next episode. Please join me. Thank you, and this has been Ear Seduction.